This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Happy Wednesday, Secret Squad. I'm Robin McGraw, and this week's episode is going to make you feel passion, inspiration, and hope. We're talking about the secret to activating your activism muscle. I met new Paul Kiazolu on the set of Dr. Phil, and I had to have her on my podcast. New Paul is an internationally recognized civil rights activist and organizer, speaking across the nation on civil rights, domestic and sexual violence, and homelessness reform. She has strong ties to the Black Lives Matter organization, has been on the front lines of some of the biggest protests in our nation's recent history, and started an initiative called Vote 2000 to encourage more young people to get out to the polls. Oh, and did I mention that New Paul is still a student in college? Thank you so much for being here. You are so inspiring. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be on right now. Oh, well, listen, I read that you started your activism at 12 years old. How did that fire get sparked in you? So my push into activism was the tragic murder of Trayvon Martin. Um, I was 12 years old when he was killed. And um, long story short, uh, my activism started with a silent protest I held at my middle school. I came in the following day of his murder and I had a gray hoodie on and I taped a message to my back saying, do I look suspicious? And I had Skittles and iced tea in my hand to represent what Trayvon had in his hand at the time that he was murdered. And um, it, of course, it caused a lot of controversy within, within my school. I was in a predominantly white middle school in Georgia. Um, so a lot of the staff felt that it was too political, but nonetheless, I persisted. Um, and overall, we went to the principal's office. I ended up winning the case. And um, the last day of my uh, silent protest, uh, we went to the cafeteria and I saw every single student in there with their hoodies on and the same exact <gasps> message taped to their back saying, do I look suspicious? And um, that's when I knew that being an activist and organizer was my calling. So, yeah, that's like the short version of it. But, <gasps> yeah, mm -hmm, that's when I knew that being an organizer was my calling. And I never stopped since. Oh, I love that you stood your ground. I love that you had that heartfelt message that you wanted to put out and that you won. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> That's just wonderful. You sacrifice your time and your energy and safety to get out on the street and stand up for what you believe in. What drives you to do that? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> honestly, people, humans really drive the work that I do. I love people and service is like the entirety of my life. Like I know that God put me on this earth uh, to serve and I am more than happy to fulfill my purpose. And I'm just blessed to know at 20 years old why I was put on this earth because some people go their entire lives not knowing their purpose. So, oh. yeah. That's a beautiful message because I have actually been saying that for pretty much my entire life. I believe that as far back as 12 years old, I knew I was put on this earth to be a wife and mother. And I 
honestly pray every day, thank God for allowing me to do just what I really truly believe I was put on this earth to do. So I really can relate to that. I'm so impressed at that very young age, you knew what you were meant to do and you have been doing it since then. I'm going to be so moved, I know, through this entire podcast. It's it's like I feel like I'm on the edge of tears because I'm already so moved by everything you're saying because you are at such a young age and and you're so passionate. So I know you and some of your struggles and your history. So with your permission, I would just like to talk about what you have experienced and that, you know, coming face to face with the violence and the confrontations you've had with the law enforcement and how you have been able to handle that. Yeah. So um, as I said, like, you know, this work on the front lines definitely is not easy. Um, It's definitely traumatic um, in a lot of different settings. And um, I spoke about it briefly on the Dr. Phil show, but I was almost killed uh, by the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, Just we're literally walking back to our car with the team after a long day of nonviolently protesting and helping folks on the front lines. Um, you know, so, you know, there's many, been many different traumatic interactions, but how I deal with it, um, I've been getting better with trying to, um, develop more healthy coping mechanisms as opposed to just like putting work on top of trauma as a means to like escape it. Yeah. And even with all of that, yeah, you felt compelled to overcome those PTSD type reactions of fight or flight, uh, aside for the greater good. How have you done that? You just now touched on some, but it's amazing how you have still stood your ground because that had to be some of the scariest times of your life, short life already, it's young life, but you stood your ground. Yeah. Um, man, I first and foremost, it's God that, you know, takes me through everything and all of my struggles. And I know that God wouldn't give me anything I can't bear. Um, so, you know, I, after every interaction I have on the front lines and just every day, I just pray to God for stability and an equilibrium, uh, within, within me. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, my faith keeps me going. I, I am definitely a Christian. I'm a proud believer. Um, and that's what really keeps me going every single day. So yeah, like God is my foundation and then everything follows. God bless you. So your faith and your passion is so strong that it gets you through. Can you take me through the moment when you were faced with the same threat that you faced as a child that led to tragic abuse, this time by a law enforcement officer? So, um, yeah, so being on the front lines and having that traumatic interaction with the police definitely took me back to a lot of traumatic events in my childhood. Um, I grew up around gun violence um, and man, more recently, like I lost one of my close friends to gun violence. Like, you know, my mentee got shot, but he survived. Um, So it's like, you know, all those different interactions, like, you know, it just all comes back every time Mm -hmm. I have a traumatic interaction on the front lines. Um, And when those like PTSD flashbacks start, I have to like, just wherever I'm at, just take like a quick second to mentally collect myself. So I get really quiet and I just start doing like deep breaths and just calming myself down. Um, Whatever I can do in that very moment to stay level-headed as an organizer and um, leader on the front lines. So yeah, it's definitely not easy, but like, um, I believe I've, I've unfortunately I've had so many different 
negative interactions with law enforcement and agitators on the front lines that I'm kind of used to it. So now I just um, know how to respond quickly while maintaining um, on the inside. Wow. Well, again, I just want to say that I'm so humbled by the fact that I just even get to sit and visit with you this morning because you are such a strong, passionate woman. And uh, I'm just really impressed. Do you feel some of the small percentage of protesters that are looting and being destructive are giving the media an easy target to discredit the mainstream sincere protesters? Or do you think that there is no such thing as going too far? Well, so for me personally, um, I choose to be a nonviolent organizer. Now, make no mistake, I am not peaceful. When I say no justice, no peace, I mean that. Um, and you know, uh, we are meant to like, we're disrupting the status quo. We don't want any peace until black people are afforded justice and equity within this country. Um, so, but I do that, my work nonviolently now, um, for the small percentage of people that choose to loot and burn things down, uh, um, that I don't condemn, nor do I support it. I just focus on the work that I do as an organizer. I know that every event that I lead and organize is nonviolent. Um, And MLK did say that a rioting is the language of the unheard. So it's like when we were peaceful, when we were taking a knee, when we were marching and linking arms and singing hand in hand, it was a problem. Now that people are being more overt with how they feel, it's still a problem. So Honestly, it's always going to be a problem to the people that want to keep keep these systems of power in place because they benefit from them. So, um, you know, I'm no longer in the business of working to make other people feel comfortable. Um, I'm just focused on liberating black people all around the world, not just in the United States. Um, And I really believe that we should value lives more than property, because honestly, a broken window can be replaced, but a black life can't. So that's, um, that's, that's my stance on that. I love that. I love that you truly believe that you have a passionate voice, you have a belief, and you're going to stand for that. And it does not mean that you are responsible for everyone else's belief and how they handle it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, there's there's a small group of people um, that partake in that type of um, organizing. And it's like, okay, like cops say the same thing. Like, oh, you know, there's just a few bad apples, which I don't believe that. But they say that. They say it's just a few bad apples. Why are you guys trying to paint all of us as the bad guy? Well, it's ironic that you say that because we're saying the same thing. Like there's a, there's a small percentage of protesters that are causing um, a bunch of destruction and whatnot, that does not account for the entirety of the movement because everyone organizes differently. So Mm -hmm. it's just the irony within those statements. But yeah. I agree. I can imagine standing up for what you believe in is hard, but even harder when you don't have many allies. Maybe your friends or neighbors aren't into it with you. You didn't have many with you at your school, but what kept you going during that time? And what do you say to people that feel strongly but kind of alone in their convictions, maybe within the family or circle of friends? Wow, that is a really, really great question, actually. It was definitely hard in the beginning um, doing this work because I didn't really have a lot of family support. Um, A lot of them didn't really understand why I was doing what I did. And a lot of times from my mom's perspective, of course, like as a mother, she's worried about my safety and all that. So we would argue about stuff like that. But 
eventually they came around and like now my family's more supportive now, like now more than ever. And I really appreciate it. But what I would say to people that feel alone in this fight and want to stand up for something they believe in one, your voice matters first and foremost, because if you don't believe your voice holds power, then how can you expect anyone else to? So you have to believe in yourself before anyone else does. You have to believe in yourself more than anyone else does. Um, and that's what keeps me going. That's what kept me going when I was just, you know, alone or doing this work before it was sexy and sensationalized. Um, I definitely, uh, it just, I definitely, I used to get bullied for being an activist. Like, you know, it just was not cool back then. But yet, because I recognize that this movement is greater than me as an individual, that's ultimately what kept me going. Recognizing that whether or not I receive recognition for this work or have others standing beside me, that doesn't matter as long as I know that I'm on the right side of history. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. I love that you say, you know, if you don't believe in yourself, then how can you convince anyone else what you believe in? It kind of reminds me of a quote. If you continue to put yourself second, then that's what you're telling everyone else. You come second. And I just think that's so simple, but it's, it's something that I truly believe in. One of my mission statements is that it's not selfish to put yourself first, to take care of yourself, to put yourself at the top of the list so that you can be there for your family. So I can be there for my husband, my children, for those I love. So I, I don't think it's selfish to put myself first. But if I always put myself second, if I put everyone else first, then I'm just teaching them I come second. And I don't think that's healthy at all. So let me ask you this. What did it mean to you to have your teacher stand beside you and support you? So that meant absolutely everything. Like when I first started out in activism, like my only ally was my math teacher and she's a black woman. Oh. And ironically, I got written up by my history teacher. I'm just like, okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Like I literally got written up by my history teacher and my math teacher is the person that supported me and literally risked her career by marching down to the principal's office with me in solidarity, oh. with her hoodie on. And allyship is just so important because like we can show up for each other in so many different ways because there's different um scales of privilege and age is, is definitely one of those and like you know as a young organizer I face ageism on the daily like a lot of adults mm -hmm. underestimate me and my power especially at the time I was only 12 years old so I definitely needed that ally in my corner to say hey like you guys are not going to bully her out of what she believes in and knowing that she's right so she stood by me and that really man like every time I think about her like it's literally my life's mission to like find her like Miss Gibbs if you listen to Robin McGraw's podcast like Aww. please like like message me, hit me up. I've been trying to find you, but she was my math teacher at Stone Mountain Middle School in Georgia. And I absolutely love her. She's played such a huge role into me becoming the woman I am today. I will never forget oh. her. Oh, so, I love that. Tell us her name again. Miss Gibbs. Miss Gibbs. And, and yeah. what, what uh, grade did she teach you? She taught me in sixth grade at Stone Mountain Middle School. We're going to find her. That's a oh mission. My gosh. Yes. <laughs> We're going to find her. Yes. Oh. And the principal that didn't suspend me at Stone Mountain Middle School, he's still there. I forgot his name, but I thought I was going to get suspended. But instead of him suspending me, he sent me home to do my research and have my case ready for him the following day. <gasps> and that's what literally inspired me now to become an attorney, um, oh. an elected official. And the 
case that I used to argue my entire that entire day um, was the Supreme Court case Tinker versus Des Moines, and that was the focal point of my argument. And he, at 12 years old, he was like, "How the heck do you know about that?" I was like, "You told me to do my research, so that's what I did." And so him and Miss Gibbs, like, if you guys are anywhere out there and you listen to this amazing podcast, just hit me up. Like, I would love to see you guys again. Oh, bravo, bravo for both of those fine adults. Oh, we're going to find both of them. It would just be wonderful. It would just make our whole lives if we could find those two for you. I just love them already. Can you explain what racial justice is? So um, what racial justice means essentially is equity across all sectors of society. Um, And, you know, when we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, I was saying that it doesn't just mean like only Black Lives Matter. It's saying that Black lives need to be prioritized at this very moment because we're in danger. It's like if somebody's house is on fire, like two, three doors down, the firefighters are not going to come to your house to set a fire out that's not there. They're going to give attention to the house that's actually on fire. So it's like it sounds ridiculous. And it's like, why? What about my house? Is your house on fire? Like, you know, it's just. I don't think it's such a hard concept to understand, but I understand that, you know, different people are at different points in life. So I'm a firm believer in meeting people where they are and where they are. And if they want to have a conversation with me, an honest dialogue, I will. But yeah, overall, like racial justice is just equity within all sectors of society, not just equality. Um, You know, racial justice doesn't just mean that because I can sit next to a white person, everything is fine and dandy. We have to really begin to deconstruct these systemic barriers that are in place that prevent Black people from really achieving as a collective. Um, So, you know, and there's, you know, a lot of people bring up like, you know, the minority of Black people that are wealthy and are successful, but as a collective, systemically, we are oppressed. Um, So, yeah. I love that analogy too. It's perfect. So can you explain to the listeners what Black Lives Matter is and what it stands for? Is it an organization or a movement? Now, I know this question may sound simple, that, and you're thinking, surely everyone by now knows, but I don't think they really do. Yes, that's a great question. So Black Lives Matter is a movement. Um, yes. It does not reside within an organization, a person, or a title. This is a worldwide movement. Now, there is like a centralized, like official organization that is entitled Black Lives Matter that was founded by three queer Black women. Um, but overall, this movement has gone all around the world. And the beauty of it is that it is decentralized. So it's like there's not just one person leading. Like, like Black people from all around the world um, have rose up under the guise of this movement, Black Lives Matter. So yeah, um, that's what BLM is. And it's a movement towards Black liberation and racial equity and justice. Wonderful. What is an ally in terms of activism? Yeah. So um, an ally can take many different shapes and forms, right? Um, As a cisgender woman, I can be an ally to a trans woman. I can be an ally to a trans man. Um, As someone that, an ally basically is someone that has some sort of privilege that they can use it to help someone else, essentially, right? But in terms of the movement, if you want to talk about, you know, white and non-Black people being allies to the movement, um, you know, white people play a role in this movement as well. 
um, in terms of allyship and showing up for Black lives and for the cause. So yeah, like I would just overall to wrap it up, just say an ally is someone that, you know, you everyone holds some type of privilege in this world. So it's showing up with that privilege to help someone else that does not have that. And I try I to break that. everything down in simple terms so it's digestible for everyone. Mm-hmm. I love that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. I want to stop right here. We do two things on this podcast consistently with every episode. And the first thing we're going to do right now is the drink of the day. And so I'm just going to take a little break. And sadly, we're not together in the same room, so we can't actually share it together. But what I'm going to do is dedicate this drink of the day to our podcast. And all of the listeners can go to I've Got a Secret with RobinMcGraw.com. And we always show the drink and we give the recipe. And in honor of our podcast together, I've created the Lemonade Spritz. And this lemonade spritz has five fresh mint leaves, one and a half ounce of fresh lemon juice, one half ounce simple syrup, three and a half ounces of club soda, and one lemon wheel. And, you know, I don't know, there was just something about it that I thought was just fresh. And the spritz and the name of it, the lemonade spritz, just made me feel fresh and alive and happy and refreshing. And that's how I feel about you. So I'm going to show you this, and I wish you were here and we would both have this together. And I'm going to explain how I made it. In a shaker, you combine the mint leaves, the lemon juice, the simple syrup, and ice. You shake it for 10 seconds, pour into a glass, and you top it with the lemon wheel. So cheers to you and everything you stand for. Thank you so much. And I, I love cooking and like making new things. That's like my favorite hobby. So Oh, that looks great. I'm going to make that. (laughs) Okay, good, good. So that's our drink of the day. And now we can move on. So let me ask you this question. How do racism and prejudice differ? Oh, wow. That is a, that's that's like my favorite question. Okay. I talk about this all the time, like literally. And like, I go to Hampton University, proud Hamptonian, the real HU, and like everyone that has class with me knows like when this conversation comes up, like DuPaul is going to talk about it. So, Oh, I love it. I love it. How funny that I asked you that question. (laughs) Amazing. So, okay. I, so again, like I like breaking this down in simple words, like academia has its place in the movement, but also I have to recognize as well that that's a privilege. Like I can explain this type of stuff and 
in the academia sector, but a lot of people don't understand that stuff. So what prejudice is essentially is what a lot of people believe racism to be. So like, for example, a lot of people say racism is just, I don't like you because of the color of your skin. And mm -hmm. that's it. That's what we've been taught to believe what racism is. And that is in fact, not true. Like that's not the only scope of racism. Now, of course, prejudice intersects with racism, but that's not the entirety of what it is. Um, and anyone can be prejudiced, but in order to be racist, you have to have that power plus privilege um, in a system that benefits you. And, you know, a lot of people, when they hear the term like racist and racism, they automatically think, oh my God, like I'm such a horrible person, like in white people, like, you know, I'm such a horrible person, this, that, and the third. And like, when I talk about this stuff, right, I believe we'll make progress if we are honest, one, if we're honest about what it is, um, who benefits from it and who bears the brunt of it. But also there's a lot of feelings surrounding it that, you know, and a lot of people frame this conversation just off of feelings. And if we try to like begin to stray away from that and like, listen, of course, you know, there are feelings involved in this, but this is also a systemic problem. You know, it's not just about how I feel. Like, it's not just about hurt feelings. It's about people literally bearing the brunt of a system that was made, that was built against them. And, you uh -huh. know, a lot of people say that this system has failed Black people, but I'm like, no, this system is doing exactly what it was designed to do. Um, so that's why we have to deconstruct and reconstruct it as a collective with everyone at the table so we can be able to have a better America and a better world. But, you know, that's the difference between racism and uh, prejudice, like prejudice mm -hmm. is that's anyone can be prejudiced. You know, those are biased feelings towards someone. And but to be racist and racism is a system. And even the word itself, the irony in it is self-explanatory, like the suffix is a mean system. So. The word itself is telling you that this is a systemic problem, but America is telling you it's just because I don't like you because you're black or white or whatever your skin color is. We just have to do a better job at, you know, really changing the narrative around this and holding our education systems accountable. Like, listen, like you have to change the way that this curriculum is taught on racism because it's not doing us any justice because every time a huge event happens that's surrounding like, you know, racial tensions overboiling, Everyone wants to act shocked, like Charlottesville. Everyone was acting like, this is not who we are. I'm like, no, this is, is exactly who America is. And until That's we right. come to terms with that, we're going to keep going in this cycle that will never end. That's so true. You know, I have a foundation named When Georgia Smiled, and uh, we focus on domestic violence and sexual assault. And whenever I travel anywhere in the country to speak on behalf of my foundation. The bottom line, it's very, sounds very simple, but the bottom line is I always make sure that everyone understands education is key to helping anyone that suffers in this horrific syndrome. Like anyone who is a victim and survivor of domestic violence will tell you education is key. We must educate everyone what domestic violence is, what sexual assault is. If we don't educate our families, if we don't educate our loved ones and our friends about domestic violence and abuse, and if you are an abuser or if you are an, a victim, it will never end. It will never change within the family, within your circle. Education is key. And I believe that's what you're saying right here with this topic. 
education is key. You can't change what you don't acknowledge, what you don't understand. So tell me, how can someone unlearn prejudice? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, education is the most important step. So really just starting to like read and that's not the only solution, but man, let me just get to the point. Google is too free and accessible to be willfully ignorant. We are in the age of technology. This is one of the greatest times to be alive. And I tell people like, it's a simple search bar. You type some things in, what is racism? Um, How do I benefit from racism? Like there's just so many different ways that you can educate yourself on these topics. We have access to everything at our fingertips, literally. That's right. So, you know. Just think about when your principal sent you home to educate yourself, to do your research. That's exactly what you did at 12 years old. Exactly. At 12. So it's like anyone can do this. Like it's not rocket science. Um, It's really just having the willpower. And, you know, for allies and white people and non-black people that walk into these spaces and they want to learn, they want to hear. um, What I would suggest for you, first and foremost, is to walk in with an open mind and open heart and open ears. Um, You can't come in on defense in these situations because there's going to be a lot of conversations that you're going to feel uncomfortable. But through that uncomfortability comes productivity. And, you know, that discomfort you may feel for like five to 10 minutes is what Black people feel every single day across this world times 10. So Mm -hmm. um, you just have to be willing to um, listen, educate yourself. The 13th is another amazing documentary um, by Ava DuVernay that is 60 minutes long. But in that 60 minutes, it will literally change your entire perspective because I know it changed mine. I love that. We will put that on our website and any other information, any other articles, any other books, anything else that you can tell us about, we will also list those on I've Got a Secret with RobinMcGraw.com. Do you have a mentor or role model you look up to in activism? Yes. Wow. There's so many. Honestly, there's just so many. But I would just say the Black women in my life really, really... Uh, play a huge role into like, you know, me being who I am today, just that sisterhood and that support system is like literally unmatched. Um, And like a person that I look up to, I don't know her personally, but um, she's like amazing. Um, Asada Shakur, um, who's like a legendary civil rights icon and like literally just at my everyday. I I so love her. set such an amazing example for young black women like myself and has really walked so we could run. So um, definitely, um, I definitely pay respect to all the older people that fought before me and made this possible. So I'm a Gen Zer that appreciates the work of older generations. (laughs) Love that. How do you suggest approaching a conversation about racism with a friend or family member that might have a different point of view? Okay, so as I said earlier, meeting people where they are is extremely important. Um, You can't just expect everybody to wake up in a matter of seconds because of everything that's going on. Like everyone learns and digests things at a different pace. Um, So we can have a conversation about like what it is and like, hey, listen, like we're about to have a conversation. It may be uncomfortable, but it's a necessary one. And if you'd like to have this conversation with me, I'm more than open. I'm making space for you. This is a safe space for us both to have this conversation. And that's how I would approach it. 
Um, now, what am I expecting someone to change their whole mind overnight? No, because I don't, I don't even want people to change their entire minds overnight based off just what I have to say. Like, I want you to actively go and do your own research as well and come to your conclusion. I'm just here um, as like, you know, this is just a conversation we're having. And, you know, you can't expect black women, black people to be your full time teacher when it comes to racism, right. because we have our own lives too. Like, you know, That's we right. have that we got to do. So it's like, you know, yeah, we're here. Like we want you to listen to what we have to say and whatnot, but also take it upon yourself to do that necessary research. Overall, like talking about racism, just meeting the person where they are. And that's where you start at. That's right. It's almost as, it's like, it's too important of a conversation that if only one conversation changes them, that maybe they really didn't get it. <laughs> it needs to be many conversations. Absolutely. From different sources, different people. So how do you think, how can allies who maybe aren't sure where to start help and support? Yeah. Um, so again, allies just coming in with those three things I listed an open heart, yeah. an open heart, open mind, open ears. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, if you don't know where to start, just ask. It's not okay. It's not, um, it's not bad to ask a question. Uh, I don't think any question is really a dumb question. Um, so it's like, you know, if you need clarity on something, just ask for help and, you know, just say, however I can help without overstepping any boundaries. Um, how can I support you? How can I support this movement? Um, really supporting grassroots organizers that are on the front lines every single day is so important. Like, of course, you know, donating to these bigger organizations are, you know, it's helpful and important, but there's like young grassroots organizers like myself and others that are on the front lines doing this necessary work every single day. And it is free. <laughs> like it is not, you know, it is not paid. I don't get paid to organize protests or any of that to like write bills or nothing. So it's like, you know, supporting young black organizers is important as well, just as much as these bigger organizations. So supporting grassroots organizers, grassroots organizations and all that is super, super important. I agree. You are an absolute inspiration. It makes the rest of us want to get up and get involved. How do you relax and reset? Yes. So like I said, like I love cooking. Oh my gosh. I love cooking. Um, love that. That's one of my favorite things to do as well as like hair and makeup and all that other stuff. Like I'm super girly. Like, I like tell people like, I, you know, I know like, you know, I'm bit, I have a huge platform and activism and all that stuff. But I'm like, I'm really just like a regular young person. Like I love like a majority of the things young people like to do. So just recognizing like, you know, my humanity in this work as well is extremely important. So I'm glad you've asked that question. I love that. I'm super girly too. You know, I raised two young men. I've been married to Philip for 44 years and then raised these two boys, but um, I'm so super girly. <laughs> so I love it. I love, I love hair, makeup, all that kind of thing. I do my own hair and makeup for the camera. I love, I love it. And so it was a lot of fun being the only girl in the house with all these men. Oh, I'm the only girl in my house. Well, out of my brothers, I have five younger brothers and I'm the only girl. Yes, I'm the oldest and only girl. Oh, wow. I love that. So you, do you feel like it's almost your responsibility to teach those young 
five younger brothers what it means to be a woman and a girl and how to how to respect them. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Like me I and my brothers, we have that conversation every single day and what it means to show up for women and to be an ally. Like we have those yep. important conversations. They probably tired of my mouth, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're so blessed to have you as a role model. They're all going to realize that as they get older, how lucky they are to have a female like you to show them what it's like to be a woman. I love that. Can you tell us about Vote 2000? Absolutely. So um, Vote 2000 is a national campaign that rolled out in 2018, started in 2017, um, and its efforts are to get uh, more young people of color and Black folks registered to vote in disenfranchised communities. Uh, we've been working really hard recently. In 2018, we were able to get over 100,000 young people registered to vote in partnership with DoSomething.org. Um, so it, it's just like, you know, an amazing campaign that we're turning into an organization that is focused on getting young people of color and Black people in disenfranchised communities um, activated and educated on what civics looks like and how you can show up um, in your democracy. Um, so that's that's really the basis of what Vote 2000 is and what it stands wow. for. And, you know, a lot of times when we talk about voting and the importance of young people showing up, we're usually talking about college educated people, right? Young folks yep. in college. And, you know, a lot of times people forget about what about the young folks that didn't go to college? What about the young folks in disenfranchised communities, impoverished communities and inner cities and even right. people um, in rural areas? We forget about that demographic a lot when it's come when we talk about what young voters showing up looks like. So uh -huh. including the people that are most that are most impacted and marginalized into the conversation and really helping change that narrative and turn it around. That's right. They have that right. They have those rights. So we cannot forget them. Absolutely. Oh, I love it. I am so thrilled to hear about that. I cannot wait to see how many register for this election coming up. Yes. Whew. Congratulations. We've come to a place in the podcast that I talked about earlier. We do two things consistently with every podcast. And the second one is we play a game. How do you feel about games? I love games. <laughs> oh, good. I do too. So for this game, I thought it would be great to highlight some important organizations as well as educational materials. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a game, but it's going to be a fun game. So I'm going to ask multiple choice questions and you're going to guess which is the right answer. So the first one is, Uprooting Racism is a powerful book written by, I'm going to give you two authors, Paul Cavell or Glennon Doyle. Paul Cavell. Yes. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Because I know I read that in school when I was in like my junior year of high school. That was like a book project we had. Yeah. It's a great book. It's a great yeah. book. Okay. Okay. The next question, Reclaim the Block organization was founded in A, 2000 or B, 2018. I've heard of them. There's so many different ones. There's so many like organizations. I know. Names. I know. Okay. I'm going to say 2000. It's 2018. 2018. I was very surprised about that because I thought it was good. It had been so many, like, there's so many different organizations with I that. Know. I don't it's, yeah. uh, This is probably like the most. So 2018. Okay, cool. Okay, so Color of Change has roughly this many members. 
1.7 million or B, 100,000? Um, 100,000? 1.7 million. million. Oh, okay. Can you believe it? Wow, that they, they definitely grew. I think yes. this has absolutely contributed to that. That's amazing. I know. Okay, so the next one, Color of Law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America, was written in 2017 or 1997. I'm going to say 2017. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. That's a great book. We're going to list all of these on the website, like I said. Okay. The only female speaker at the March on Washington in 1963 was A, Josephine Baker, or B, Ruby Bridges. I'm going to say um, it had to be, was it Josephine? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Josephine. I know it had to be Josephine because I'm like, Ruby. Ruby were still really young around that time. I'm like, okay, yeah, it had to be Josephine Baker, yes. Okay, the Loveland Foundation is committed to showing up for communities of color in unique and powerful ways with a particular focus on A, children, B, black women and girls. Black women and girls? Oh yeah, that's true. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. This, okay, this is the last one. Dorothy Height, known as the godmother of the civil rights movement, began her activism work in the 1910s, 1930s. Uh, 1930s. Yes. Isn't this funny? You're so smart. That was super fun. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, listen, that is unfortunately the end of today's episode. So, Paul, I am so impressed by you and all that you've accomplished from such a very young age. You should be incredibly proud of yourself. I know that you are. And I know I'm super proud of you. Can you tell the listeners where to find you online? Yes. So you can follow me on social media. Um, find me on Instagram at newpaul underscore justice, N-U-P-O-L underscore justice. Same thing on Twitter. I'm most active on Instagram. I'm really, that's like my favorite social media platform. So you can definitely find me there. I'm really accessible and I try to respond to as many messages and comments oh. as I can. I just love it. And I know they will too. Secret Squad, if you liked today's episode, please leave a review on the podcast page. I read them all. And don't forget to check out I've Got a Secret with RobinMcGraw.com for extras, recipes, and more information on how you can get involved in organizations you are passionate about. Until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>